Well, I'm going to read to you today the most horrific passage in all of Scripture. It's chapter 16 of the book Revelation. And as we come to it, we're going to come to a culmination of the wrath of God that's being stored up for all the evil that has been happening in the world. And these final judgments or plagues are represented by bowls of wrath. So I'm going to read the chapter and I'm going to comment along the way as I read it and then we'll get into some other things related to it. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So this is aimed at the people who follow the beast. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and everything, every living thing in the sea died. In Southern California, sometimes we would get these algal blooms. We call them the, the red tide. It turned the sea red, but it was this algae that sucked the oxygen out of the water and then you have a bunch of dead fish floating on the ocean. So maybe this is what this is. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so the angel says, what's happening to the earth? It's just. And then the the saints are at the altar. They've been watching what's going on in the earth, and they're saying, yes, Lord, these are just. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So notice their response is to curse God. There's no repentance. They probably don't even think they're doing anything wrong. They're just mad at God. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So whichever nation the beast is ruling, darkness overcomes it. I'm wondering if it's related to the sun. Maybe it's a solar flare that scorches the earth. With a solar flare, there's an electromagnetic pulse that knocks out the electrical grid, and now the world is plunged into darkness. And think of everything else without electricity. There's no commerce, there's no gas, no air conditioning. We continue. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Still, no sign of repentance. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. 
Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And so these evil spirits will enter the minds of world leaders and drive them to war. Verse 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. So this is the voice of Jesus. He's saying it to the saints who are on the earth. Notice, they are still on the earth when this is happening. And we don't know when the Lord will come, when we will have to give him an account for our lives. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har is um, a word for mountain or hill in Hebrew. There's a plain below that mountain called the plain of Megiddo. We'll visit that place when we're on our Holy Land tour. But um, this is the place where kings are going to gather. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled the wine of the fury of his wrath. Notice this is aimed chiefly at the mystery of the mystery Babylon, whatever nation that is, at the end of the age. Well, that's horrific, isn't it? No one wants to be around when this happens. But what if we are? Well, then the people of God will have to be ready. The people of God will have to be ready to suffer and to suffer for their faith. Now, there will be some who will say, well, the church is going to be raptured out of the world before this time of wrath comes. And they are referring to this event called the rapture. What's the rapture if you haven't heard about it? It's an event where Christians who are on earth will be just suddenly taken out of the earth, and um, and that's the event. Now, that word rapture, you won't find that word anywhere in the book of Revelation. In fact, you will not find that word anywhere in Scripture Look it up in your concordance. You will not find it. So, if the word doesn't even appear in Scripture, where in the world do we get that idea? Well, we read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 14, verses 13 through 18. So, I'm going to read through that passage, and I'll comment along the way. Paul's answering... Some people who have asked him a question like, hey, what about people who die? Are we going to be with them, you know, when we die? Or what happens if the Lord comes back while we're still alive? And so Paul is going to answer their question. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind that has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So these are people who have died. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, so, all right, now we're getting some timing here. It's at the coming of the Lord. We who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. So now we're talking about the second coming with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are all the people who have died before. There's going to be a resurrection here. After that, we who are still alive and are left, when the Lord comes back, will be caught up. There's the idea of rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet here in the Greek really means rendezvous. If you're living on the west side and I'm living on the east side, I might say, hey, let's meet downtown and we'll continue together to the OSU game in Oklahoma. That's the kind of, hey, let's meet together and, and continue on. So that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice the Lord's already coming down at this point. And so we will be all together with the Lord. And then Paul will add the words, comfort one another with these words. And so it appears from the one place in Scripture where it talks about being caught up that this happens at the second coming of the Lord. Now, having said that, you have to have humility to admit what you don't know for sure and to show grace to those who disagree with you on such matters. Maybe I've put out an idea to you today that's like, ah, I haven't heard that before. Okay, show me grace. And if you still think that maybe... Uh, Rapture happens before the tribulation, I will show you grace. Because you see, even though God's word is true and it's infallible, humans interpret it. And we are fallible. In fact, we have 2,500 different Protestant denominations in the United States alone because they quibble over some point of doctrine. And so the church needs to show grace to each other. So then where did this idea of rapture come from? And why does it seem to be the popular view in evangelicalism today? Well, it comes from a theological point of view called dispensationalism, which emerged near the turn just before the end, and just before the 20th century. It was advocated by a man named Darby. He divided um, 
church history or really the human history into separate dispensations of time. And, and part of this included a, a rapture of the church before the coming of Christ and before the tribulation. It received support from D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, and so it was popularized. Schofield was a disciple of his, and he wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, an early study Bible that influenced people. <clears throat> Charles Ryrie was a student of Schofield. There was a Ryrie study Bible that was popular in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It all had this dispensational point of view. There was a book in the 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey. It was a popular best-selling novel. There was a movie called The Thief in the Night, and um, it had this point of view, scared the dairy lights out of people, lots of people who got scared into the kingdom of God because of it. And then uh, this became the prevalent theology in schools like Dallas Theological Seminary and Talbot Seminary, and a lot of non-denominational pastors went to those schools. Non-denominational pastors, um, tend to be the ones that are on the radio, and they're the ones you hear, and so that's popular. Reformed theologians kind of keep to themselves and write academic stuff, you know, for the church. And then we've had the left-behind novels. That takes a dispensational theology and creates a scenario out of it, and I have to agree that dispensational theology does create some speculation where we can speculate about all, all kinds of things and, you know, get some entertainment from it. But historically, the church has not had this view. You won't see the rapture in, in church religious literature before Darby. The only place we hear it is in the rapture of St. Teresa of Avila, who's caught up into heaven as she prays. Now, we are an evangelical Presbyterian church, EPC. So what do EPC churches believe about this? Well, we believe the Westminster Confession of Faith and the essentials of the faith. By the way, the essentials are out in the kiosk after the service. But here's what the Westminster Confession says about the second coming and Jesus' return. It has three paragraphs on it. God the Father has ordained a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom he has given all power and judgment. In that day, not only will the apostate angels be judged, that's those angels that fell and are now demons, but all the people who have lived on the earth will appear before the court of Christ to give an account for their thoughts, words, and actions, and be judged according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." God's purpose in arranging for this day is to show forth the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and the glory of his justice and the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Christ wants us to be completely convinced that there is going to be a day of judgment as a deterrent to sin for everyone and as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. He's also made sure that no one knows when this day will be. So that, when, so that we may never rest secure in our worldly surroundings. But not knowing what hour the Lord will come, we must always be alert and always be ready to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. 
Any mention of the word rapture there? No. Millennium? No. Tribulation? No. Jesus is coming back, and there will be a judgment. The EPC Essentials of the Faith. Jesus Christ will come again to earth personally, visibly, and bodily to judge the living and the dead and to consummate history and the entire and, and the eternal plan of God, even so, Lord Jesus. No talk of rapture, no talk of millennium, no talk of all the other things that people argue about when it comes to end-time theology. In the EPC, we have a motto, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, love. The EPC doesn't say you have to land on a position on the rapture. It says we want you to land on the second coming of Jesus and on a final judgment. These other areas are areas of liberty, non-essentials. You see, the EPC doesn't really give you a spot to land on on a lot of things. Rather, it gives you a landing zone. When you're a parachutist, they don't tell you to land on a spot. They tell you, land in the zone, because that zone will be a safe landing. And when I used to fly airplanes, you have to line up your, your plane with a runway, but unless you're landing on an aircraft carrier, you don't aim for a spot. You have the whole runway to land that plane. Sometimes you got to use the whole runway to land that plane, and if you land that plane and walk away from it, you have a safe landing. EPC gives you landing zones. And where we might differ within the landing zones, they say, hey, you got to love one another in these areas. Why? Because we need to be humble enough to admit what we don't know for sure. And we need to focus on advancing the kingdom and not, and not quibbling on non-essentials. So what's my opinion? All right. Before I went to seminary and before I did theology at the master's level and the theological level, here's what I believed. I believe that before the seven years of tribulation, the church would be raptured out of the earth. Then there would be seven years of tribulation. And then Jesus would come back. And then he would usher in the millennial kingdom where he would reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then Satan would be let loose. And then, you know, there's a final conflict and Jesus wins in the end. And I was quite convinced of that because my youth minister told me so. And I had read Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, and I had watched the movie, you know, uh, Thief in the Night. So I thought I knew it, right? So then I go to seminary, and I, had, I was influenced by a man named George Eldon Ladd and uh, a man by the name of Dan Fuller. He, uh, you won't know him, but he mentored um, John Piper, and he was also a mentor to me. Then I, I did doctoral work under R.C. Sproul, and, and they said just... Throw away any you know, preconceived ideas and just look at the scriptures. Just look at the scriptures and see what emerges from them. And you draw your opinion from them. 
And here's where I am now. I could be, I could change my position in the future, but here's where I am now. I think the rapture happens at the second coming of Jesus. When those who are still alive will meet him in the air and will triumphantly return to him to the earth. Basically, we go up quickly and then we come down. The, the worldly, earthly imagery would be when King David would come back from victory, the citizens of Jerusalem would go out and meet their king, and then they would come back rejoicing with the king so that they could join in celebrating his victory. And I think before the Lord comes back, things are going to get really bad, and that we, the church, we'll have to live through that kind of tribulation. And we're, we're going to come under increased opposition because we believe in Jesus and we stand for a particular, take certain memorial stands. And I believe the church has to be ready to endure this and ready to suffer for this. Now, we can hope for a rapture before a tribulation. Okay, I hope. But we have to be prepared to endure and to suffer with and for Jesus. Now, if you don't agree with me on this, that's okay. I, I love you. And I'm sure the Lord's going to correct all of our theologies when we get to heaven, including my own. And I have fellow pastors whom I love in the EPC, and we don't agree on all these details necessarily, but they're my brothers, and I love them. And now that I'm talking about theological issues, let me comment where I and the church land on a few other ones. As an EPC church, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith and we have the essentials of the faith. They create for us a landing zone. And so when people ask, well, what's the position of the church on this? That's hard to determine because the church gives you latitude. So we may land on different spots. We're going to give ourselves latitude. Another question might be, well, where does the pastor land on certain things? And that's a decent question because he's the primary teaching person in the church. So let me tell you where I stand on creation. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Science shows us that energy Matter, even time, had a beginning. There was a time when there was not, but it began. And the same science that tells us that these things had a starting point, which I think is an argument for the existence of God, that same science tells us it happened about 17.3 billion years ago. Okay, so that's a, a really long time ago. And then the earth, that's another creative process. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as for the earth, it was formless and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So the earth already exists. There's oceans on the earth. Things have already been happening on the earth, but the Spirit is ready to act. And then the Word of God speaks, and he says, let the earth produce vegetation, and let the earth produce trees, and let the earth produce animals, and 
He commands the earth to produce these things. And when he speaks, these things begin to happen. Maybe they took a really long time to happen. Maybe they happened a long time ago. But everything has happened by the word of God and by his command. He is the creator. What about the origin of man? I believe that man is a special creation, created in the image of God. God breathed into him his spirit and he became a living soul. He was placed in a garden, he was given total free will, he was innocent, perfect. But he believed the, the lie of Satan and he fell and that depravity affected his total being. And he passed on that depravity to his children and his children and he are in need of redemption. And that redemption comes through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. How long ago that happened? I don't know. I'll give you some latitude on that. What about the flood? Will I affirm a flood? If Jesus refers to a flood, then a flood happened. But I see no evidence for a flood happening as some say, in 3000 BC, with so much water that it covered every mountain on the earth. I don't see geological evidence for that. I'm a geologist. But there is geological evidence that the Black Sea and the Persian Gulf came into being at the conclusion of the last ice age at about 11,000 years ago. There's also archaeological evidence because there's human settlements in the bottom of those bodies of water. And if you're a person living in the Persian Gulf, or if you're a person living in the Black Sea area, when it's dry land and then all of a sudden it fills up to what it is today, you're going to say, the whole world is covered with water and I can't even see the mountaintops from where my boat is. And the memory of this event is preserved in the ancient literature of the, the Middle East. God's point of view is recorded in the book of Genesis. Now, I'm a trained scientist. I was a scientist before I was a theologian. And so I bring that as I interpret the scriptures. We all bring who we are as we interpret the scriptures. But certainly, if my positions are a little bit different than what you've heard before, they're within the landing zone of a biblical, evangelical, and reformed faith. So here's what I want us to take away from today's message. First of all, I started with, Genesis, uh, with Revelation chapter 16, describes horrible wrath, and I want you to be prepared to endure a time of wrath poured out on the earth. Christians endured the fall of Jerusalem. They endured the fall of Rome. They endured as uh, Muslims from the Arab Peninsula ran over their countries and cities. The church has always have to endure persecutions and assault against their faith. If we're not ready for it, we'll fall apart. 
Secondly, I'm preaching this book at this time because I think a time of trial is coming to the world. I already see it coming. I believe that we're going to see increased pressure on the church and on Christians to spout the, the, the party line that's out in the world today. And we're going to be condemned for standing on the truth. But we have to be ready to stand for that truth and to endure the assault. And finally, I want to call you to love and to grace if we don't agree on every single theological matter. Sometimes I'm asked, Pastor Sam, what's your, what's your view on the millennium? Are you uh, post-millennium? We'll talk about millennium next week, uh, a few weeks from now. Are you pre-millennial? Are you post-millennial? Are you amillennial? And I'll say I'm pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end when Jesus returns. It would all pan out in the end when Jesus returns and makes things right. Until then, well, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, all things love.